Well, uh, Happy New Year. Uh, good to see you here, uh, beginning of the year. It's always, uh, I, I guess I'm just getting to the age where every year I'm like, I can't believe it's another year gone already. And they feel faster and faster, and it's hard to even get my head around that, and it goes so quickly. Uh, you know, we come into New Year, uh, oftentimes we, we start to think about New Year resolutions and what do I want to do this year. Uh, naturally, this time of year becomes kind of a time of reflection of the year that went before us and what's to come and things that we want to change or maybe we want to do better. Uh, you know, kind of traditionally, uh, I think I read this, this uh, just this past week that 50% of Americans make New Year resolutions and a lot of times it has to do with diet and exercise. And we go, oh, I'm going to get in better shape. I'm going to eat better. Uh, I personally end up looking at my schedule and I, and I want to be more, uh, use my time better. And so I kind of rethink through my schedule. I make a list of books I want to read. I start to try to put those things into different times and set aside different times for it. And so kind of always rethinking how we're doing things. We can do things better each year. But I want you just to think about that, even from a believer's standpoint. God calls us into his family. He saves us. He brings us to faith. He opens our eyes to see him. We are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are a new creation, but we are still in process, every single one of us. None of us has arrived, and we're still walking through that. And so the idea of really thinking through, well, what do I want to do to honor God more fully this year is a good thing, and it's a good thing that we should continue to look at as we continue in this process of sanctification. Or, or what we say here, discipleship. We're growing as disciples. Our one mission as a church is to make disciples that make disciples, Discipleship is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. And so that is an ongoing process for every single one of us. And so it's good for us to kind of stop and to think about the year ahead and how are we going to do that and how do we follow God more closely and more clearly. And so what we're going to do this year as a body as we gather together on Sunday mornings is we're going to start to walk our way through the Gospels. And the Gospels, when I say that, I mean the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that show us eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is. And so the way we're going to do this is we're going to do this kind of taking the, the frame of uh, the harmony of the Gospels, if you've ever heard of this. I was introduced to it when I was in seminary. There's several people that have undertaken doing this. The one that we used when I was in seminary but was by Robert Thomas and Stanley Gundry. They've taken the four Gospels and put them in chronological order. Parallel accounts where they overlap. And so that was eye-opening to me when I did that in seminary 15 years ago, 16 years ago. It was really helpful to get the full scope of Jesus' ministry and where he goes and what that looks like. And so I just recommend that to you. If you've never looked at one of those, Harmony of the Gospels is a great place to start of just seeing chronologically how they fit together. But taking all four Gospels, seeing the fullness of Jesus' ministry and where he goes and what he does. And so we will be spending time in all four of the Gospels. Different weeks, sometimes we'll be looking at more than one as they line up together. And some weeks, like this week, we'll be in John's Gospel. But the four Gospels all point us to who Jesus is and what he was doing and what he was like. And it's written by eyewitnesses that were there, that was seeing his ministry and his life unfolding. And so Matthew's Gospel is written by one of the 12 disciples, Matthew. He was there with Jesus, called to be a follower of Jesus, walking with him. And so Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew being a Jew, writes to very much a Jewish audience. And so he points out lots and lots of things from the Old Testament that find their ends in Jesus. And so he, he highlights that in a lot of ways in Matthew's Gospel. Mark's Gospel is written from the eyewitness account of Peter. You see Peter kind of central in so many things that are happening in Mark's Gospel. 
And so Mark is writing from Peter's eyewitness account. If you know anything about Peter, he also was one of the 12 disciples, but he was also kind of in, in Jesus's inner circle. And, and what I mean by that is we say this a lot here when we talk about discipleship. Jesus had lots and lots of disciples. And then he had the 12 that he called that became the apostles that were kind of leading out as the start of the church. But then even out of the 12, he had three, Peter, James, and John, that he'd kind of pull aside at different times and he would just take them, like thinking of uh, the transfiguration. He takes those guys and goes, hey, come with me. And so you see Jesus going deeper with fewer, which is what we talk about here when we talk about discipleship. It's the way we saw Jesus doing it. It's the way we seek to do it here as we make disciples and what we're doing. And so Peter, being part of that inner circle, he eyewitness account, and that's what we see in Mark's gospel. But then we have Luke. And Luke was a physician and a historian who went and took an orderly account of eyewitnesses and compiled it and put it together. And that's what we have in his gospel. In fact, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 1, he tells us that. He says, uh, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you. And so he goes, and as in a historian, and he takes the eyewitness accounts and he puts them together. And so you have Matthew and Mark and Luke. And we often refer to those as the synoptic gospels. And they follow the same basic synopsis, the same basic timeline. And what happens is those three gospels overlap a whole lot. And so you see a lot of the same stories from a slightly different perspective, from eyewitness accounts. But they line up together in a whole lot of ways. And then the fourth gospel, we have the gospel of John, which was written last. John, also one of the twelve, but also that inner circle of three, along with Peter and James. And in John's gospel, we get some of the same stories as the synoptic gospel, but we also get a whole lot of things that are not in the synoptic gospels. He's writing last of the four, and he includes some things. In fact, he spends about half of his book on the last week of Jesus' life. He really focuses in on the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. He really focuses in theologically more so than the synopsis that the synoptic gospels take. But all four together give us this beautiful picture of Jesus's life and what it looks like and what it means to walk with Jesus and see who he is. And so as we're doing that this year, we will be kind of going from one to the other. We'll be kind of moving around, but following chronologically. And that's the way we're going to lay it out. So why do it like that? Why are we even doing this, spending all this time on the gospels? And we're going to spend the better part of the year in the gospels. And so a couple of things. One is we take all of those together we see the fullness of who God is as he's revealed himself to us in Jesus. And we want to spend time looking at where Jesus went and what he said and what he did and just seeing the picture of the way God has revealed it to us. But secondly, and this is just my own heart in doing this in this year, is I want us to really stop and think about how we see who God is, how we see Jesus. Uh, to be quite honest, in our culture today, we have taken Jesus and we have divorced him from the context in which he came. And we take bits and pieces and we kind of put it in the way we want it to be. And we filter out the stories we don't like. And we leave a lot of stuff out. And all of a sudden we have a Jesus of our own making. And it doesn't actually look like the Jesus of the Gospels. And so what I want us to be doing as we spend time walking through together in the Gospels is letting Jesus 
as we're going to see him introduced here in John chapter 1, stand as Lord over our life. And that we don't filter out anything he says or anything he calls us to, but we start with who he is and let him speak into our lives and we seek to follow him in every way. And so we don't want to skip any of it. And we want Jesus to be the one that is leading and guiding us in all things. And so that's just my heart as we go through uh, the gospels together. As we do, we're just going to break it down real roughly like this. Basically, you can follow Jesus's ministry in three years. It's a little over three years, his earthly ministry. And that's kind of the way we're going to divide it out. We're going to look at the roughly the first year, which is often referred to as the year of obscurity or preparation. People don't really know a lot about who Jesus is. He kind of comes onto the scene. He's doing some things that kind of setting his ministry up. And that happens in the first year. The second year sometimes is referred to as the year of favor. He starts to do miracles and he's healing and he's teaching and people get really excited that he might be the Messiah. And they start to get really pumped about it and everybody's real excited. But Jesus kind of explodes their expectations in a whole lot of ways. And that leads to the third year, which is the year of opposition. And people are suddenly like, whoa, 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 whoa. we can't quite control this guy the way we thought we were. And suddenly it starts to cause some problems with the religious leaders of the day and what's happening. And so all of a sudden there's some opposition there. And so within those three years, we'll even break it down further. But as we walk through it, I'll continue to point you to where we are in the timeline, what's happening chronologically, how Jesus has come, how those things come together. And so that's basically the way we're going to do it. But starting today, we're going to look at John chapter one that we just read. And we start here because really in a lot of ways, this is the prologue. It's the introduction. John starts with who Jesus is, and he starts an eternity past. He starts at the very beginning. And I told you, John's work is very much more theologically minded in the way he's pointing things than the other three synoptic gospels, as far as the way he arranges them. They're all theological. But he starts here with this soaring account of who Jesus is. And so we're going to look at John chapter 1, and simply two questions as we look at it. What does it say here about who he is? And then secondly, what does it mean for us? And so when I say, what does it mean for us? We're going to think about this two ways. His original, original audience and the people that were, Jesus were dealing with, right? The original audience. But then us, as we read it today, what does it mean for us? And so let's just start with who Jesus is. So if you would look with me, John chapter one, beginning in verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so the very first thing that John says is, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the the word that he uses for word there means is the Greek word logos. That means divine truth, the ultimate authority that we've seen. And here it is, the logos that has come through. And he says this, and he says, the word was with God and the word is God, was with and is. Now, you read those first few verses and he just keeps using this word logos or the word. The word was with God, but you don't really have a clear understanding of what he's talking about until you get to verse 14. But if you look at verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then he tells you in verse 17, this truth came through Jesus Christ. And so when you put those together, what you have, the word that he's talking about is he's referring to Jesus. And so the first thing that he tells you in the very first verse of John chapter one is that Jesus was with God and Jesus is God. 
And that's where he starts. And he says, I want this to be clear. I mean, he can't start with a bigger statement than that. And the very first verse of John's gospel is that Jesus is God. He was with God and he is God. And so I want you to just think about what he's saying there for just a second. And he's saying something that's huge that holds right at the heart of everything that we believe in our Christian, Orthodox Christian faith is the Trinitarian view of who God is, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why he says he was with God and he is God. He's both. And so you go, well, wait a second, how does that work? And so what we say and what we believe and actually what gets fleshed out pretty clearly in John's gospel and in in all four of the gospels together is that there are three persons in the one true and living God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are the same in substance and equal in power and glory. And that's kind of our definition of the Trinity. Actually, what I'm saying there comes straight from New City Catechism, which we use here, printed in your bulletin every week. 52 questions for the year. It's a great way to hold together the historic beliefs of our faith because it spells them out so clearly. But that's what we get. And that's what it's talking about and referring to here when he says Jesus was with God and he is God. And so the very first thing he says when we ask the question of who is he is that Jesus is God. And so that's the first thing that John starts with. Pretty big. First line of his gospel. But then the second thing he says, look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. And if you look closely to the way that this lays out, if you know your Bible... John's actually kind of mimicking very closely Genesis chapter 1. Right? He's, he's talking about creation. He's saying about God being there. So it says here uh, he was in the beginning with God. If you go and you read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Very famous passage, very familiar. John's kind of picking up on that and he's, he's echoing that here, right? And so he says in the beginning, right, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And he's saying Jesus was there at the very beginning because he is God. He was with God, but he is God. He was there in the beginning. And then he's going to say everything was made through him, just like it says in Genesis one, you see the parallels there. But the second thing I want you to see right there in verse two is that if Jesus was in the beginning with God, he is eternal. He's not only God, he's with God and he is God, but he's eternal. He has always existed. Before anything was made, God was there. Father, Son, Holy Spirit together in perfect unity and harmony from all eternity past. And so he starts with two pretty huge statements from the beginning that Jesus is God and he has eternally existed. And so that's what he says in the very first two verses before anything was created. But then look at verse three. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Right. And so, again, if you go back to Genesis one in the beginning, God creates. It tells us in Genesis one and verse three, God said he spoke his words went out. Let there be light. And there was light and God creates through his word. And then we read here in John one. That in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word is God. That Jesus is the very logos, the divine truth, the word of God that goes forth and creates all things. And he says right here in verse 3 that nothing was made without Jesus. Nothing. And so not only is he God, not only is he eternal, that he is the creator. That as the father speaks, the son goes forth and creates. 
And God perfectly in harmony together creates all things, Father, Son, and Spirit perfectly together. And he speaks it into creation. And without Jesus, the very word of God, nothing was made that was made. And it's such an important thing for us to stop and think about that Jesus is not a created being. He's not merely a man. He's not an angel. He's not made less than God. He is God himself come to us. And this is a really, really important distinction for a whole host of things that we will get to as we're working through the Gospels. But I want you just to think about that for a minute. Today, in so many ways, we place other things on Jesus. Well, he was a good teacher and he was a man. He's a great man and a great teacher and he taught us a lot of things. And that is not what scripture says. It says that he is God and he has eternally existed and that he created all things. That nothing was made that was not made through him. And so that means that he is the creator of all. He is not a created being. And it's important distinction because sometimes it gets very subtly kind of lost in maybe conversations you have. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, both believe that Jesus is a created being less than God. And that's the exact opposite of what it says in John chapter 1. Jehovah's Witness will tell you that when it says, uh, in the beginning was the word and he was with God and the word was God, they will say, well, was a God. And he's less than God, but he's not fully there. And that causes all sorts of problems. Theologically, biblically, what the Bible tells us. That if Jesus is not God, then there's huge problems for the atonement. Jesus bearing the sin of all those that would put their faith in him. God pouring out his wrath on Jesus, who is fully God. If he is not fully God, he can't stand under the weight of that. And we are still in our sin. That is a huge problem. And so I just say that, that these are very important doctrinal truths, but they have lots of outcomes that are really, really important that we see. And so Jesus is God. He is eternal. He is creator of all. But then look at verses four and five. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then look at verse nine. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world and he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. So notice I skip six, seven and eight. We'll come back to that next week. Six, seven and eight. He's referring to John the Baptist who came before Jesus is the one who's proclaiming that he is now here. He's the forerunner that's announcing that Jesus is now here. He has a very important role to play in Jesus's ministry. We'll come back to that. Don't get confused when you're reading in John's gospel. Six, seven, and eight talks about this guy, John, who came. It's not the author, John. The author, John, is one of the disciples who comes later. The John he's talking about here is John the Baptist. And so just don't let that throw you. It can be confusing. You start reading John, book written by John. He talks about John. You make that connection. But it's actually a different John. It's John the Baptist. But we'll come back to that. But notice what he's saying here about him being the light Uh, the light of the world and the life of the world. And he uses both of those there. And I want you just to think about that for a second and connect it back to the word he uses about the logos. The logos, the divine truth. And think about what it says in, in Genesis 1, that God speaks and things are created. Action happens when God speaks. And it is the sun going out creating all things. Jesus is there creating all things. He is the divine uh Truth. He's the divine logic that holds all things together. And that's really what we mean when we get to this idea of logos, the ultimate reality of things and how they are. And that is who Jesus is. 
And so when Jesus comes and he dwells among us and he steps into the world, he is the embodiment of all truth. He's showing us how things are, the way they were created to be, the way they are made, the way they actually are. And that is a huge, huge idea. You could meditate on that idea for the rest of your life and never get to the end of it. It is so big and so profound that Jesus is the truth that holds all things together. It's like what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1. He holds together the universe by the word of his power. That by his word, God has created, but he also holds things in existence. What he says is the ultimate reality of the way things are. That is a massive, massive idea. And so Jesus is that truth that holds everything together. And I want you to think about even just practically how that works. Sometimes we... uh, hear uh, uh, maybe a song or a movie or a book that we get really excited about or maybe kind of captures the imagination of a lot of people. It's really great and it connects with a lot of people in different ways. And what happens when, just say it's a movie, movie that people get real excited about and uh, we all kind of have our own interpretation and we start to talk about it. Hey, did you see that movie and what happened? Hey, what'd you think happened in that part, right? What were they going for there? What were they saying? And we start to have our own theories and our own ideas And then all of a sudden you hear the writer, director of the movie talk. And you see an interview and they go, well, actually the movie is about this. And you go, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't catch that or I didn't see that fully, right? But as the author of the story, they get to tell you what the intent was because they're the author of the story. And if Jesus is the creator of all things that speaks all things into existence, when he steps into the world and he begins to speak, he is the Logos. He is the divine truth. He is the one as the author that tells you this is what is true. This is what is real. This is what is the ultimate reality. And as Jesus, as the Logos, he steps into the world, the world that has been marred by sin, that has been thrown into chaos because of our rebellion against God, that has begun to hide in the darkness And ignore the things that God has told us. And as he steps in, he is now the light in the darkness. He begins to reorder the chaos and put it back to the way it was meant to be. He shows us the way in which we were created to live. The way in which we were created to love one another. And he does so, and it's so stark in its contrast because of our sinfulness that people get upset and they struggle with it. But Jesus is the divine logos, the divine truth that comes in and steps in and shows us. He is the light and life of the world. And he's now here. That's what John is saying. And so Jesus is not only God, he is not only eternal, he is the creator, but he also is the light and life of the world and he is now stepping into it with us. Pretty amazing thing that he says in just a few verses. But there's one other one here. Before we think about what this means for us, look at verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so it says he steps in to the world and it tells us in verse 12 what he came to do. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And Jesus has come to restore his good creation. 
the light and life of the world is now in it and he's come. The divine truth is now here and he's doing so to invite us back into his family. Us as sinful, broken people who've rejected God and the world he created. That divine truth is now showed up and he is here and he's inviting us back in. And it says right there in verse 12 that all those who do receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so throughout scripture, we have this, this image that God is our father. He's created us. He is ultimately our father, but we have rebelled against him. We've said, I don't need you and I don't want you. That's what sin is. We have walked away. We've separated ourselves from God. And so what God does is I'm going to fix this and I'm going to come and I'm going to provide a way for you to come back to what you were created for. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. And he steps into the world. The light of the world steps into darkness and he begins to reorder his good creation in the way it was originally intended to be. And he shows us what is true. And he begins to call us back to himself. And as he does, as the light shines in the darkness, you know what happens when it shines in the darkness? We who've been living in the darkness suddenly get exposed. Suddenly there's a light. Have you ever been in a really dark room and somebody flips the light on you? Oh, right. It's hard at first. And then you look around and you see how things are a mess and it starts to shine in. But Jesus comes. And he is the light and he begins to reorder our chaos and he begins to set things in order. But then as he does, look at what it says in verse 14. And the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we seen we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. He is the ultimate reality. He is what is true. He is the divine truth that shows us the way things are, but he comes full of grace. Grace and truth. He reveals to us who we are as broken sinners. His light shines in the darkness, but then he stands, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We're going to see this throughout the gospels over and over again. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to seek and save the lost. He's going to tell story after story, time after time. He's going to say, yes, I know you're broken. Yes, I know there's darkness. Yes, I know it's a mess, but I'm full of grace and truth. Come to me. And so what you see here is that Jesus is not only God. He is not only eternal. He is not only creator. He is not only the light and life, the logos, the logos, the ultimate truth, but he is also savior. And he's come to call people back to himself. And he's showing us that that is exactly what God is like. That we are saved by faith in him and what he does. Do you see that there in verse 12? But to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All who put their faith in him and what he's doing. He he welcomes you back into his family. And so he shows us that he is the savior And so right there at the beginning, John's laying it out for you. This is who Jesus is. Now, the question becomes, well, what does that mean? If all those things are true, and that's a lot of really big ideas, a lot of huge ideas, one after another, right there at the beginning of John, what does that mean? And so I want you to think of this a couple ways. When we read the Bible, when we're reading through the Gospels, we have Jesus walking on earth, interacting with real people in time and space at a certain place, right? And so that's the original audience to Jesus's words. He's speaking to actual people. But then these eyewitnesses that are there with him, 
inspired by the Holy Spirit, write it down. And they write it down with an audience in mind in the first century, right? The people they know and the words that they know trying to communicate to those people. And so that's kind of the second audience. But then the third audience is us, right? 2,000 years later, real thing, real interaction with Jesus, with people written down by the people that were there, inspired by the Spirit to that immediate audience. But now, time and space, 2,000 years later, we're reading it. And so I want us to think first, what does that mean for the audience that is there the day Jesus steps in and begins to preach and teach? His original audience. What happens as he steps in? And it tells us in verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Right? There was a struggle there. He steps in and he begins to teach and to preach. He goes first to the Jews. It says there in verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus starts in his ministry going to primarily Jewish people. I think there's a lot of reasons why, but part of it, uh, Paul tells us in Romans that they had the oracles of God. That God had revealed himself and he had shown what he's like through these people down through the ages and these times. So it makes sense that Jesus would go and start there. And so he does. And he steps in and they have the promises of God. That the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be a descendant of Abraham. And he's going to be from a descendant of David and from the tribe of Judah. And the government's going to rest on his shoulders. And all these things that they had down through the ages. And here Jesus steps in and he begins to fulfill every single one of them. But what happens is what? They don't receive him. Or at least a lot don't. Or, or we could really even say at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, nobody fully gets what's happening. And I want you to think about everything we just said. That if Jesus is God, that he is eternal, that he is creator, that he is the light and life of the world, that he is savior... And he steps in and he begins to speak the word of God with complete and total authority, which it says this over and over in the Gospels. He didn't speak like the religious leaders. He spoke as one who had authority because he did, because he is the Logos, the divine truth. And you know what happens when he starts to do that? His audience is thinking far too small. They had an idea of what the Messiah would be like fits in this box and this is what he looks like and he checks these boxes but when he steps in this is the creator god of the universe who is the ultimate reality and he cannot be put in that box and suddenly there's lots of problems and everybody's going but wait a second that's not how this works they're thinking far too small they're thinking a plot of land in the middle east they're thinking overthrow the government they're thinking we're going to make you a king you're going to help get rid of our taxes And Jesus is going, no, 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 I have come to reclaim all of my good creation because I am the creator God of the universe. And simply put, every single person he comes into contact with is not ready for what's about to go down. No one. And he begins to blow up their categories in every way. And they're all going, whoa, wait a second. I mean, you get to where even Peter's like, Lord, it'll never be. You're not going to die. Get behind me, Satan. This is what I've come to do. And so Jesus is going to begin to explode every single one of those categories. No one's going to see the magnitude of what he's come to do. And I just say that to remind you as we read through the Gospels. It's easy for us today to look back and know the whole story 
and go, man, why was Peter such an idiot? I would have been just like Peter. And I'm going to guess so would you if we were there watching it all unfold in real time, trying to come to grips with the logos, the divine truth that has always eternally existed, that is God is now standing in front of us. And so I just remind you of that, of the original audience. But then what does it mean for us? When we think about it and we come to it, and I'll tell you, a lot of it is very much the same. We still do the same things. Even though we know the whole of the story, we still in a lot of way do the same things. We pick and choose. We read the parts of the gospels we like. We go to our favorite stories. We memorize or paraphrase bits and pieces of verses that we really like and we leave a whole lot out. Or we take what Jesus says and we filter it through our political ideologies. Well, he couldn't have meant that because that doesn't fit with what I believe about these other things. Or he couldn't have meant that. Or I'll just kind of skip that whole section altogether because we just can't figure that out because that can't be right. And so what we do is we start to filter out. And I'm going to tell you, we do the same thing. We try to put Jesus in the same box that his original audience tried to put him in. And we forget that we are dealing with the creator God of the universe who is the ultimate reality. And if that is true, what does that mean for us? If what John says is true here in verses 1 through 18 about who Jesus is, how do we respond Anything short of total and complete obedience of seeing him as Lord of our life is insanity. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to look at what he says here of who Jesus is and then go, hey, you can be my uh, my helper. Jesus, you can be my co-pilot. The one who holds your very existence together by this power of his word. And you go, I may take your advice sometimes. It makes zero sense. There is only one way to respond to Jesus. That he is the Lord of your life. And so when we say here we want to be disciples who make disciples. We want to be growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. the only way in which it makes sense you know c.s lewis famously said that jesus is either lunatic liar or lord he said that man comes and walks on earth and says he's god and he says no one can come to god except through me i am the way the truth and the life and he makes these claims and he says these things and he clearly and directly says them over and over. And so C.S. Lewis said, what do you do with that? He is either stark raving mad. He thinks he's God. He's the greatest swindler who ever lived. He's a liar who's trying to manipulate and use you and say these things so that he can take advantage, which makes zero sense because Jesus doesn't take advantage of anyone and he lays his life down. He says, or he's who he says he is and that means he's Lord. And if he is Lord, then there is nothing that makes sense in terms of your relationship with him other than complete obedience. God, I am yours. My life is yours. You created me. You hold me together. You have now redeemed me through laying down your life. What can he ask of me that is not his? And the answer is nothing. 
And so I say that as we begin walking through the Gospels for this purpose, that we would spend time walking through together each week, looking at the words of Jesus, and then our heart's pulse would be, how do we obey? This is who God is, and this is the way you've revealed yourself to us. How do we obey everything that you've said? And so each week we're going to gather in our missional communities. We're actually going to have questions that go with the series throughout all of it. This is what Jesus says. This is who he is. This is what he looks like for us to discuss and think about and wrestle with. But then the ends of that is that we together could would say, how do we obey this? How do we live with Jesus as Lord of our life? And so you'll find in your bulletin this week, I don't know if you noticed this, but each week we have some helps for reading through the Bible. There's a read through the Bible plan there. Each week we publish one of the questions from the New City Catechism that goes with each week. And so it just started over again this week. But then there is a third thing that is now there that's just a reading plan through the Gospels. And it will line up with each week where we are. And so I would just challenge you in this new year to take and make a plan right now of how you're going to spend time in God's word, how you're going to walk with Jesus, how you're going to read through that each day, asking God to show you what does it look like to have complete obedience to you in this? How do I continue to follow you? And it's printed right there that we'd gather together and that we did spur one another and continue to do that, that we would see Jesus for who he is, that he is the creator that he is eternal, that he is God, that he is the light and life of the world, and that he is our savior. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you've come to us. We thank you as the creator, God of the universe, that you love us so much that you are willing to humble yourself to come in this way, that we can see exactly what you're like, that you are the light of all men, that you are the one that shows us the true reality of all things. And I pray that we would approach you as such, as who you are. Give us eyes to see the glory of who you are and what you've done for us. I pray that we would walk humbly together, spurring one another on, that we would seek to follow you in all ways and in all things. And that this year we would just continue to grow in our obedience and our love for you, that we'd be overwhelmed with the glory of who you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.